But I wanted to start the sermon by asking you guys how you're doing with your New Year's resolutions. We're about eight to nine weeks into the new year. How's it going? Anybody, anybody holding, holding their ground? You know, you know what a New Year's resolution is, right? We still do that, right? It's a good time of the year to kind of reflect on our lives and to think, well, what would I like to change in the new year? nothing magical about January the 1st, but uh, a lot of times we take the opportunity to reflect upon our lives and to make some adjustments, and uh, we set goals for ourselves, and a lot of times by this time of the year, we've already forgotten those resolutions, but it's not that way with God. And I want to share, take time and share something with you this morning, but before we do that, let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have an eternal resolution that you're committed to, that you are resolved to accomplish, and we thank you that we can look at that today in the book of Acts. And so we ask you, Lord, to, to guide our thoughts, to motivate our hearts, uh, to worship you, and to, be, to, to learn to enter into your joy by participating with you on a daily basis in the progress of the gospel that's going on all around us. And we just don't see it a lot of times, Lord. So we just ask you to open our minds and our hearts today for the, the, to receive your word. It's in Christ's name we thank you, Father. Amen. You know, one of the advantages to learning a new language is, is that you get to read the Bible in another language. Uh, and what's sometimes interesting for me is, because I have on my BibleWorks software, I have like four English translations, and then I have like uh, six different German translations under that, and then I have the Greek and the Hebrew. And so I can just look uh, on one page and examine verse by verse uh, if there's any differences or major or something that maybe one translation uh, just leaps out at me more than the, the others. And what's, what's interesting is Paul uses a Greek word, prothesis. We can put that first uh, slide up r right now, and you can see this word. Um, it's, a, it's a word that's usually translated purpose or plan in our English translations. Paul uses it six times in his letters, five of those in the context of predestination and election and calling. Uh, so they have to do, this word has a lot to do with God's sovereignty and saving an elect remnant from amongst the Jews and the Gentiles for himself. And we're going to see that by looking at a few of these verses, or all five of these verses where Paul uses this word in this way. But in German, it's translated resolution. It's translated forsatz. And since the days of Luther, in his uh, uh, first German translation in the 16th century, um, it, all German translations use the word Vorsatz, and that's the same word that you would use for a New Year's resolution. You're, you're, you're deciding upon a course, and you're resolved to ha make it happen. And God uses this term to describe his eternal plan of salvation of an elect uh, people from all nations, and he calls it his resolution. He's resolved and that's why I think this translation is actually, I would prefer it in an English translation to see the word resolution there. So I, Matt did me a great favor, and he put together these verses with the word resolution in there instead of the English word purpose. Let's take a look at those passages. Now, that's a little too far away for me to read, so I'm going to go to my notes. But in, uh, in Ephesians 1, verse 11, you know the whole context there. Um, it's, 
you know, the verses three, uh, uh, three, four, and five emphasize the Father's role in salvation, that he has an, a chosen um, people to, to be adopted as his children, in contrast to chapter two, where it says we're children of Satan, children of disobedience, and children of wrath. And God took, before beginning of time, he purposed to save uh, an elect people. And so we read here, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, and that would be the word resolution, I think, would be a better translation here, according to the resolution of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Paul uses it a second time in Ephesians 3, also in verse 11. We read there in verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal um, purpose, or we could say here, resolution that he, he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see here that it's an eternal resolution. And that word eternal, I believe it's not just referring back to eternity past, but to God's fulfilling in future eternity what he has planned to do. It's an eternal purpose. It's an eternal plan. And I like the word resolution because it demonstrates that God is not going to only accomplish what he has purposed, but he is resolved to do so. And you see that in the prophets. God says, I, Yahweh, have spoken, and I will do this. And so God lets us know that he is absolutely committed to saving an elect people for his own glory. And we see that also in Romans 8, a passage, verses 28 through 30. We also have here a passage which clearly emphasizes God's sovereignty in saving an elect people. We read here, and we know that for for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose or according to his resolution. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, quick question here. What, ha what takes place between uh, calling and justification? We're justified by what? Faith. And so what's interesting is man's part here is left out. It's included, but when God calls with an effectual call, the result is faith. He gives ears to hear, eyes to see, and you cannot resist his will uh, when he has chosen you before the foundations of the world. And he brings the gospel to you and he enables you to believe and to repent. And so it says all those that God has predestined, he also called. And those that he called, he also justified, meaning they, all of those that he calls believes, every single one of them. And all of those that he's justified will be glorified. And so the perseverance of the saints would be between justification and glorification. Also, that which we are responsible for is not mentioned here because it's talking about what God did to save us. And it's so certain that it's, the, it's just like everyone who's justified is also going to be glorified. We will cross the finish line because God is faithful. You remember Peter? 
Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And that's exactly what we see God doing. He, he's, he's sovereignly working to save a people for himself. And if you look at Romans 9, verse 11, we also see this word, prothesis, that I would translate resolution here. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's resolution, according to election, might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And what we see here, and also in 2 Timothy uh, 1, 8 through 9, is we see that, you know, we always place faith over against works. But here, resolution is placed over against works. It's God's resolution that's placed over against works. And we see here in Romans 11 that it, uh, it says, that God, in order that God's purpose or God's resolution in election might stand, and that word for stand means remain, might remain. And then there's a, you know, there's a colon there. And then here's the, here's the, 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 the point. Not by works, but by him who calls. So you think back to chapter 8, all who he has called will be justified because they're all going to believe. And that's when Jesus said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will not lose one of them. And so in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9, we also see resolution being placed over against works. I'll read the ver uh, two verses, 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own resolution and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And what I love about the book of Acts is it just shows God in action doing exactly this, fulfilling his resolution. So the book of Acts puts on display how devoted God is to fulfilling this eternal resolution. And so I invite you to open up the book of Acts. The passage we're going to be taking a look at uh, primarily is in chapter 5. I personally believe that the words of the scholar Gamaliel, and we read later on in Acts that he was Paul's teacher. Paul studied under this man. Uh, he was a, a recognized scholar amongst the Jews at the time of Christ. And um, he, he says to them, if this is of God, you will only be found as those opposing it. And he says, and we're going to take a closer look at his words, but I think that Luke purposely demonstrates from chapter 1 to the end of the book the numerical, the numeral, I can't say it in, in English anymore, the numerical growth of the body. He starts with 120, 3,000, 5,000, not a few prominent women, and he just constantly shows that this movement is growing. It's not falling apart, as in the case of these two men that Gamaliel uh, mentions. So let us just open up Acts 5, and we'll start there and read, starting in verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. 
When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. I just want to emphasize the boldness here in the face of opposition. So that the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And they, they say to them, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thoidas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Do you see what Gamaliel is doing here? He's saying, this Jesus was also killed. And if this is from, of human origin, it's just going to fall apart, just as in the case of Thoridas, just as in the case of Judas the um, Galilean. And so let's read farther here. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail, just as in the case of Thoidas and just as in the case of this um, man named Judas the Galilean. And it says, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And that's the, I think that Luke purposely presents this, this statement from Gamaliel as a, as a central part of, this, of, of, the, of the book of Acts. And he's going to demonstrate the truth of these words, that this is of God and it cannot be stopped. And that's what he's going to do, and he's going to do it in two ways. One in which he shows that God is saving his elect. People are believing in spite of tremendous persecution. And then secondly, he's going to show the second thing God does is he works in the proclaimers so that they don't keep their mouths shut. They open their mouths. They preach boldly in the face of persecution because they're not afraid and they're not ashamed of the gospel. And that, too, is God sovereignly working in his proclaimers so that they stay bold in the face 
of, of suffering or even death. And so I want to, I'm going to have to, because of time, I'm going to have to skip um, the first three chapters, but you just see how bold Peter gets. The change, the transformation of Peter is incredible. He goes from denying Christ to being so bold. Um, and that's one of the, the transformations we see here. But I'd like to start with chapters 4 through 7 and just highlight a couple of, um, an observation here. And that is the increase in resistance. Uh, we have them being warned not to preach in Acts 4, 13 through 22. They warned them severely. And, and in chapter 5, we just read that they're referring back to that encounter with the apostles. They said, we warned you. We threatened you, and you still are disobeying us and preaching the name of Jesus. And then in Acts 5, 40 through 42, we read that the, the apostles were beaten due to their preaching of the gospel. So it's, you, you see a, an increase here. I wanted to use the, word, the German word steigerung. Uh, you see a, um, yeah, an increase in suffering. It's gone from threats to beatings. And then in chapter 7, we see the stoning of Stephen. And so it's gone from threats to beatings to, to, to murder. And we see that all in church history. We look back on 2,000 years of this. And uh, even in America, you see hate, you know, calling something like homosexuality sin is now defined a hate crime. And that's just another way of making us quiet down because we're afraid of losing our job or afraid of, uh, of being viewed as an extremist, a fundamentalist. And, um, and that's one way that Satan's even working right now in the United States to get Christians to back off on certain sins like homosexuality and transgender. And so we see this, this increase, and yet we see God fulfilling his plan and so we already looked at the words of Gamaliel and what he's doing there. And so now let's look at the, the, the numerical growth of the church in spite of strong opposition. And we're going to start in chapter 1. In the verses 14 and 15, we see that in the days um, up, you know, around Pentecost, there were 120 believers in the upper room. And then let's read chapter 2. Verse 41, you know, the, the greatest advantage to not wearing a mask is that you can lick your fingers quickly uh, when pages stick together. Uh, two, and, the, and your glasses don't fog up. Uh, 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then look down at the last verse in chapter 2, verse 47 praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then let's go over to chapter 4, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Then let's look at uh, chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was increasing, verse 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 
And then 8, chapter 8, verse 6. It says, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. And we read later on that they were actually baptized. So we, we read here that, it, that there was a multitude of people. And, and what's the nationality of these people here? Samaritans. Think back to Acts chapter 1. You're going to receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the other most parts of the earth. Well, why did he have to emphasize Samaria? Because he knew that the Jews would not go there willingly. And even later in Acts in chapter 12, those scattered in, in connection with the persecution of, um, it's, it's, like, it's actually chapter 11, um, they go all the way to Antioch and it says they preached the gospel only to Jews. And then it says, but some of them preached to the Gentiles as well. And that's how the church got started in Antioch. But the point is, is that the Jews really believed that the new covenant was for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it was a hard, it took a long time for them to grasp. Look at Peter. God had to give him this vision from heaven in chapter 11, um, uh, telling him to not call unclean what he is called clean. And he goes into the house and he eats with those uh, Gentiles. And it says all those that were present heard the, who heard the word believed. And then Peter goes back to Jerusalem and they, he gets, um, oh, I don't know how to say this in English anymore, but he gets confronted and put on the defensive by saying, how could you go into the house of these unclean Gentiles and even eat with them? And so the, the, what's, what we see in the Gospels and what we see in Acts chapter 1 with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. The, the, even the apostles were slow in obeying this. And what happens is God uses persecution to make them do what he wants them to do. He created a door for the gospel in Samaria because if the Jews won't go to Samaria, where's the, where's the most logical place to flee if you're being chased by the Jews? Go to Samaria. It's like a, it's like a, a, a wildlife reserve. You can, you can flee there, and the Jews are just going to stop right on the edge. No hunters allowed. And you're safe there. And, and we read here that Philip preached the gospel to a large number and that they believed. In verse 25, we see that after the apostles showed up uh, to confirm the work there amongst the Samaritans, we read in verse 25, After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And so we see here God sovereignly working to make sure that his plan of preaching the gospel to the Samaritans actually takes place. And then what, what do we see in chapter 9? God takes an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of the church, and turns him into an apostle. Who building the church? Paul gets saved, and it's a and it's a radical conversion. I mean, he's still breathing fire after Stephen's been been killed, and he's like, "What else can I do?" And he is so zealously persecuting the church, and Jesus confronts him and says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And in a moment, he realized that this was true. What Stephen had been preaching. 
and what he had heard about Jesus, about the Messiah having to suffer. And we read in chapter 9, verse 31, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in what? Numbers. And then in chapter 9, verse 35, All those who lived in Luda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. All those living in Lydia or Lida and Sharon. And then we read in verse 42 of chapter 9, This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. And then we have um, Cornelius' conversion uh, in chapter 10, and all those in his house believed. And then we come to chapter 12, and I, I oh, oh, excuse me, I, I skipped chapter 11. What's interesting here is, we read once again that they were um, scattered due to the persecution with, uh, in connection with Steve, uh, uh, what did say, Stephanus, uh, Stephen's death. And we read here in verse 21, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23, when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. Literally, he saw the grace of God. But I love that translation. He saw what the grace of God had done because that's what it means when he says he's looking at people just like I'm looking at you. And when I see you, I see what? The grace of God. Because you're only sitting here if you're here <laughs> out of free will. Um, that, pardon the pun. Um, if you're here voluntarily, what I wanted to say is it's because God has done a work of grace in your life. And so when he got there, he saw these believers saved by grace, and that's why it says, as he saw the grace of God. So it is truly salvation by grace. And then in verse 25, we read, or in, and then in 26, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught what? Great numbers of people. I mean, Luke is just going out of his way to point out that what Gamaliel said is true. If this is of God, it can't be stopped. If it's of men, it's just going to fall apart, just like the 400 followers of Thoidas. He gets killed, the whole movement fell apart. Jesus gets killed, and the opposite happens. It doesn't fall apart. And it cannot be stopped. No matter how much persecution they bring, it cannot be stopped. It's impossible. Why? Because it's God's work, not man's. We are his co-laborers, but God is the one who is motivating us to speak and using the gospel preached through our lips to save his elect. And he will do it. It's, it's not an option. God, unlike us, when he makes a resolution, he keeps it. And that's what we see in the book of Acts with this emphasis on numbers. And it just goes on. Look at chapter 12. I love this chapter. Not because James gets beheaded, but because Herod gets killed. Um, you know, Herod kills James, and God shows his power that he could have he saved James if he wanted to. Because he, he delivers Peter, and he could have delivered both of them. But in 12, through 23, we see that God kills Herod. He's just struck him down dead. 
And then you see in, verse tw- in chapter 12, look at verse 24. And this is a repeated word. Through, gets repeated several times in, in Acts. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. The word of God continued to spread and flourish, even though Herod killed one of the apostles. I mean, we've got a dead apostle. But is it slowing anything down? No, God just added another apostle a few chapters before by saving Paul. And so God is not lacking in resources. And we see here that he can take out any governmental official he wants to. But just like Satan, evil men serve his purposes up until the day when God will do away with all evil on earth. But we see here in chapter 12 the sovereignty of God. We see also in chapter 13, 1 through 41, the gospel is proclaimed very clearly. And then you see opposition to the gospel. We'll read, let's read verse 42 and following here from chapter 13. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath when the congregation was dismissed. Many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. And here's a quote out of the Old Testament. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In fact, in Isaiah, God tells, speaking of the Messiah who's to come, he says, it's too little for you to save Israel. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles as well. And then verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Here you see election. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Because God went one step farther with them. With all men, God stands with his hands outstretched. Anyone is allowed to come to God and repent. But Jesus tells us no one will unless the Father draw them. And so we see here that God, for his elect, he goes one step farther than holding out his hands and offering salvation to them. He actually grabs them and draws them to belief in Christ and produces their conversion. And this is why God's plan cannot be stopped, because it's not dependent upon man, it's dependent upon him. And in verse 49, I love this, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Do you see what Luke is doing here? Back in 12, verse 24, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And now we read in, verse, in 13, 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So there's all this abuse, all this um, suffering, all this persecution, and the gospel's just spreading. It's like almost as if it's like um, fertilizer for a plant. Persecution just seems to, to, to help the gospel, not hurt it painful none of us want it but we see that God uses persecution to bring about 
the preaching of the gospel to people he wants to hear it. And he also purifies the church with it. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter that it's time for, the, for God's judgment to begin with who? With the house of God. And so God, in his grace, does for us what he did for Paul by giving him a thorn in the flesh so that he would not become proud. God's interested in not only saving us, but he's also interested in keeping us useful for preaching and teaching his word. You look at 13, I mean, at uh, chapter 16, verse 5, we see that it's just Luke continues to, to emphasize this. It says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And so that's once again that same statement. In 17, we read in verse 12, As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. I, over, I skipped to verse 17.4. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And so Luke just continues to emphasize this. Look at um, towards the end of chapter 17, verse 34. It says, Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demaris, and a number of others. And in mentioning the names of individuals, God makes it clear that he is saving people, individuals, not just numbers. We read 3,000 believed, 5,000 believed, but it's these, these 3,000, these 5,000 are made up of individuals. And here we even have their names being given to us. And as we go through, farther through Acts, we see in chapter 17... Uh, those, those passages I mentioned. And then we see in chapter 18, look at what God tells Paul. 18, 9 through 11. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And so God comforts Paul and if you want to know what Paul was going through and why God comforted him, take a look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, also the context is the sovereignty of God. They're boasting about Apollos and, and Cephas, which is a nickname for Peter and Paul, and they're comparing them with one another. And Paul is telling them, reminding them of how they got saved. He says the gospel is foolishness to the to the, uh, to the Gentiles, and it's uh, a stumbling block to the Jews, but to the called, those of whom God has chosen, is the power of God uh, for salvation. And what we see here in chapter 2, Paul describes what was going on in him when God told him this that we just read in chapter 18. He says, So it is with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that's not a formula for success when you look at chapter 1 where it says that the, the, the message of the cross is foolishness to the, to the Gentiles and it's a, a stumbling block to the Jews. So why would you preach it? If, if it's for every Jew and for every Gentile, either a stumbling block or foolishness, why would you preach the gospel? And Paul says, I purpose to know nothing amongst you except the very message you don't want to hear. And he says, I resolved not to give in 
to the fear of man and to preach this gospel that no one wants to hear. And then verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And it says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I've got to look and see how much time I have. I got one minute? Oh, my goodness. Why did I look at the time? I wanted to go on. on. Um, yeah, let's do it. Uh, you guys are just like my congregation. They just uh, they get mad at me if I stop. Um, let's go back to Acts 19 real quick here. So you see God strengthening Paul when he was weak in Corinth. And he tells us what he was emotionally going through. And then God strengthens him. And then look at 19, verses 19 and 20. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That's 50,000 days' wages. And then it says, In this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And so this is the third time that we've seen this statement, the word of the Lord spread and flourished. And so Luke is obviously pointing out what... Uh, Gamaliel said, it's true what he said. This cannot be stopped. And that's, I, I, don't, I don't know about you guys, but that motivates me. I get extremely motivated when I know that God determines whether the person I'm sharing the gospel with gets ears to hear and eyes to see or not. That person, if God wants to save him, he doesn't have a chance. He's going to get saved. And that's what God's sovereignty does for us. It makes us bold. It, makes, it encourages us. And you see God's working in his proclaimers. Just let me run through this real quick. Chapter 21, verses 30 through 31. First attempt on Paul's life. How easy was it for God to prevent that one? A little boy overhears what they're saying and reports it. And uh, it gets uh, stopped. Well, that may have been the second attempt. But in 2311, God's assignment uh, for Paul preach in Rome. And this is huge. Did you see this here? We're talking about resolutions. Look at the vow these guys made to kill Paul. And, and, and look at, Luke does this perp intentionally. 2311, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Next verse. The next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. What do you think? Did they get hungry and thirsty? You bet they did. God said, you're going to Rome. They said, over our dead bodies. And God says, well, if you want to. <laughs> and, and then you, you just go through here, and then there's another attempt on Paul's life. And then you see that, you know, he gets a free trip to Rome. He gets to go. They said, well, I could have let you go if you hadn't appealed to Rome. And most of us would be going, saying, oh, man, why did I appeal to Rome? I could be free right now. No, he had an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome on a ship. But then there's the shipwreck. He survives that. Then he gets bit by a, a venomous snake, and God heals that. And then I, one of my favorite verses in all of, all of Acts 
And I talked to Garrett. It was so funny. I was talking to Daryl about this. And I said, you know what my favorite verse is in, in Acts 28? And he said, and I told him, and he says, that's exactly the verse. That's the title of his last sermon was that. And it says, and so we came to Rome. God says in 2311, you're going to Rome. Forty men say over our dead bodies, shipwreck, bit by a snake, and he gets there. And so we came to Rome. And then you see at the very end, he preaches the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews and Gentiles. And God gave him great freedom there uh, to preach the gospel. And so we see in, in Acts chapter 1, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So you see Jerusalem, you see Judea, you see Samaria, you see Rome. And then the story just continues to North America, to Africa, to all the continents. And this is because it cannot be stopped. And we get discouraged because we have people in our lives that we know and love and we've been praying for their salvation. Any of you who, don't, who have children who are not believers, you know what I'm talking about. And you hope and pray that God will sovereignly change their hearts and draw them to himself. And sometimes when we don't see any colleagues at work getting saved, when we don't see family members getting saved or friends, we can get discouraged. But look worldwide. Look around you here and see the grace of God. That's what Barnabas saw when he came to Antioch. He saw the grace of God. And God is resolved to finish what he started. I want to conclude the message today. I don't want to conclude the message, but if I have to, I want to do it with this email that was sent out. My wife forwarded this to me, and it's from a, a missionary couple in Lutsk in the Ukraine, a city I visited personally. And their names are Timothy and Rhoda Sloan, if you want to pray for them. Listen to, the, to God's work in their lives. He writes, This is quite possibly our last means of correspondence for some time. War is imminent and the consequences dreadful. A state of emergency has been declared, and this will be followed by martial law. Young Ukrainian men from 16 years of age are being called up to serve in the military, and Ukrainians are being given the right to carry arms. A major cyber attack is happening just now as we write, which has affected Ukrainian banks as well as government websites. Ukrainian citizens are being asked to urgently leave Russia, and our local currency is in free fall. Rhoda and I are not leaving. How can we? As an elder in the assembly, my responsibility is to shepherd at all times. It would be a terrible testimony to get up and leave the Lutsk believers. We have been preparing for this day. Rhoda and I have, have bought generators, fuel, food, etc., as we would like to turn the gospel hall into a place of shelter to accommodate and feed the assembly of believers who will face many a hardship. God is about to give us a great opportunity to show our Christian faith practically and reach out into our community with the gospel. I love that. They look at this war and say, God's about to give us a great opportunity for the gospel. How can we leave? We've been praying for open doors, and here they are, blown wide open. And he says, Rhoda and I, may have to move out of our apartment as we are close to the Lutsk military airfield. And, the, and it goes on. But all I can say is this. That's the kind of faith that God wants to um, establish in all of our hearts. He wants to make us his co-laborers and co-workers. And I tell you, the reason a lot of us walk around with a long face 
is because we're not busy with what God's busy with. You, you, start t- you, you consciously make yourself available to God on a daily basis, become his co-laborer in fulfilling his resolution, and you will have joy. You'll have joy even when your body aches. I have aches and pains everywhere. I got bad, bad genes from my dad. Shoulders, everything just hurts. But I have joy. Why? Because I know my life is not in vain. But if you start to get materialistic, and you start to live for the weekend, you are not going to be joyful as a, as a child of God. Because when you join with God in doing what he's resolved to do, you can't be stopped. Your dreams can get foiled. And, 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 and maybe they should. But your co-labor with God can only get foiled by your flesh if you're not walking in the Spirit. And so I would love to have more time to bring this home, but um, I think enough was said for you to see, and you've, you guys have obviously been studying the book of Acts. You see God's sovereignty. You see God opening doors. You see God working, and he's still the same God, and he's still doing the same things in our day and time. And even if the numbers are small, you never know what God's going to do in the lives of those individuals and through them for the sake of the gospel in the future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you encourage us from your word, how you fire up our hearts to worship you, to live for you, and to to be bold for you. So we pray for this couple in Lutsk, for all the missionaries and those serving you in in the Ukraine. We pray, Father, that you would make them bold, that you would help them to see this opportunity when people are in fear, when people are death is imminent for those soldiers I pray father that you would save your elect there that you would cause these divine appointments to take place like like Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch father you are capable of guiding us to divine appointments and we pray for that for this week in Jesus name amen